I record these episodes weeks and sometimes months in advance, and this episode is no different. My friend and I, Eric Wu, recorded this May 26th of 2020, and that's obviously way ahead of what happened in Minneapolis with George Floyd and what's been happening around the country and around the world. And I've got a lot of episodes that are interesting and entertaining, ready to go, but they just didn't feel appropriate to release in this time. And I'm not trying to overstate my importance here because I'm not Tim Ferriss and this is not um, millions of listeners and just want to be aware and appreciative of the people that do listen. And I am releasing this episode with Eric because we talk about trauma in this episode. And in this context, it's about the stress from being an entrepreneur and starting companies and having people and family rely on what he was trying to accomplish. But I thought the resources after thinking about this for several weeks, there's some articles, there's some books that may be helpful for what we're all experiencing now. And I just want to ask for suggestions because um, if I could in any way use this platform to help with fighting racial inequality and social injustice, please reach out to me via email through the website. I'd love to hear your ideas and ways that we can make a difference. I'll hit record. So you want me to turn off my camera then? Is that? Uh, yeah. Like I said, I don't know if it affects bandwidth or sound quality, but I, I don't ever use the video, so I don't record or keep the, the video file. I just okay. do the straight audio file. Gotcha. Cool. Stop that there. Okay. Welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thank you to everyone that has been listening and sharing and commenting. I, I do appreciate it. With me is new friend, Eric Wu. He is the co-founder seven years ago of Bracket Labs, doing business currently as TaskRay. And we were on a happy hour oh, a couple months ago, a COVID happy hour whiskey with our friend Eric Hill. And just some of the things we had talked about, I thought were were very interesting, very fascinating, and resonated with me personally. And with that, Eric, good to talk to you. Thanks for making the time. Hey, Matt. Great to be with you. So take me through the origin of Bracket Labs slash Taskray as the, the co-founder. And we'll get to a lot of why I wanted to talk to you about this. But take me through a little bit of that history and the, the startup that you had founded before that. Sure. So... Um... Gosh, I guess it was 2006. I was on the founding team of a company called uh, Fuser. We were in Boulder, Colorado, uh, backed by one of the investment vehicles of uh, Jared Polis, who's now the governor of Colorado. But back then, Jared was uh, an entrepreneur who had done very well with the sale of BlueMountainArts.com. Uh, I think he had served on the state um, the state education board and was kind of thinking about what was next for him politically, but in the meantime was still investing a lot. And so I was uh, on the founding team of that company. We were a consumer web play. You remember web 2.0. Uh, we were kind of in the thick of it uh, to give you a sense of the time. Oh, yeah. uh, 
MySpace was really hot. Facebook was only for college students. <laughs> uh, right. And, and Jared had seen and, and actually suffered this problem. He had seen some stat that said, you know, the average person had 2.7 email addresses and thought, wow, that's a lot of cognitive overhead to kind of manage your communication and it's only going to get worse. Uh, we need to build a single place to log in and manage all your communication. So that, that was what we were up to with Fuser. And man, talk about getting the timing wrong. We, uh, you know, Jared ran in the Democratic primary for Congressional District 2, which is mostly Boulder, some mountain communities as well. But, you know, if you win the Democratic primary for CD2 in Colorado, you're basically going to Congress. And so he, that had happened like the summer of 2008 and uh, his investment people who were on our board said, you know, Jared very much believes in what's happening here. He wants to follow on. He doesn't want to be diluted, but his investment activities are going to get curtailed as he goes to Congress. So you guys need to go out and raise around, have find a new lead investor and he'll, he'll participate, but you know, we need somebody else to lead now. And so we got all ready with a road show. We were up and down Sand Hill Road. We were in New York. We were in Boston. And this was right after Labor Day, 2008. And uh, if you remember what was happening in the fall of 2008, like we went from uh, having really good VC meetings, having getting all the way to the partner level of VC meetings, people were really interested to everything freezing as, you know, Lehman Brothers failed and the whole economy went up in smoke uh, in 2008. And so what ended up happening is at the end of all that roadshow and all that uh, fundraising, we came home in uh, November of 2008 and laid off 60% of the company that we had spent three years building. And it was one of the, you know, to that date in my life, one of the hardest things that I'd ever done. And it was really scary and it was really, uh, you know, big emotions in there and ultimately nothing to be done. Right. And so that happened. And then everybody that was left were we were all just working towards trying to harvest any value out of what we'd built over the last three years, this, you know, this aggregating, uh, product that was meant for consumer web. We ended up with a portfolio of, uh, 17 patents, that was one way that we were going to try and get value, but ultimately we were trying to sell it for pennies. And of course, uh, that same economic shock that had rocked us was rocking everybody who might've acquired us. So, you know, we got really close to MySpace buying us. We got really close to AOL buying us. We got really close to British Telecom who had a real interest in consumer web applications back then. Uh, we got really close for everybody. And then of course their capital was getting frozen. So the end of 2009, uh, we closed the doors for the last time and, uh, and I was exhausted. Like it was, that was a really crazy, stressful three years of my life. And uh, I had just gotten married earlier in 2000, like February of 2009. We closed the doors. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> we closed the doors in September and I went home and I went, well, that was a hell of a ride. And I told my wife, I, I think I'm going to just take the rest of this year off and just rest. And she said, yeah, totally. You deserve that. You should do that. Uh, I'll also mention to you I'm pregnant. Surprise. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, you know, you, you take the time off, but I'm pregnant. So, you know, and, and she was, she had a, a very good job at the time, but 
I was right back out then, you know, I was right back out consulting and uh, for, for those listeners that, that are familiar with the world of software, you know, 2009 uh, agile software development was, you know, about a decade old at that time. And I had you know, two jobs earlier, I had got really early exposure and really uh, very high quality exposure to running agile processes for product development and software. And so I went out basically as, you know, uh, your chief product officer on contract, right? A fractional chief product officer. And I was helping a few different companies manage their agile processes, uh, kind of learn about agile, teach their developers how to work within an agile framework, teach their product managers how to tee up agile work. Uh, and then of course, because I'd been so early in the world of social media, with Fuser, there was a lot of people who were interested in like, how do we bring social media considerations into what we're up to as a company? So I was doing some strategic consulting as well. Uh, one of my clients, the, the, the director of product management at that company who I was consulting directly with, uh, we worked really well together. We were, we were clicking. We probably did about six months of really good work and kind of transforming her organization and uh, along the way, we realized, wow, this company is not very fun to work at. <laughs> uh, <laughs> from, a, from a vision point of view, it's a real question about where they're, what they're doing here, right? And there's, there's a lot of investment in the software side, but we don't really know where it's trying to go. But she and I worked really well together. And over time, as we got closer, I started pitching her like, we should just start a business. And... Uh, we didn't quite know what we were going to do. We had uh, the foundation of us being a good team. The two of us really worked well together. We had uh, my experience having done it before. And, um, and that was it. And one day we were kind of kicking ideas around and she said, Hey, have you, you know, salesforce.com. And I was familiar with the company, but didn't really know much more besides. Yeah. It's a CRM, right? Yeah. Um, and, and she said, well, they're building this platform. And the idea would be that you can add applications to your salesforce.com implementation as simple as you can add an app to your phone. And there's going to be a whole store for it. And you can, anybody can build anything and put it out there. And, uh, and I just read this article. I'm sure uh, a lot of people have seen this, this, this idea that like one of the least productive times in corporate America's life is the first week of the NCAA basketball tournament. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah, those, I have. Those first three or four days, right? Like where everybody is just glued to the beginning of the tournament. And it's just that craziness of the kickoff of the tournament. And I just read that and I, it was on my mind. And I said, what if we built a bracket manager? Because- For Salesforce. For Salesforce. Like my <laughs> idea was like- you know, everybody who's using Salesforce is also, it's a very good overlap with the people who are spending a lot of time with that tournament. And she said, well, you kind of have a gatekeeper here and that you got to be able to sell a business value to the, to the administrator of the Salesforce instance, right? So if that administrator is an NCAA basketball fan, you might be able to get it into their org, but that's, that's the hurdle you got to clear. Somebody's got to decide to spend money on it. And of course, you know, that, that was, uh, my naivete about how, how enterprise software worked back then. Um, but that, that's, that's how we got the name Bracket Labs is we kind of, 
started playing with this idea of like, what are, what are discrete small footprint apps that would clear that hurdle for uh, a Salesforce administrator who was looking to augment functionality inside their Salesforce implementation or add something new, but really was just trying to solve a discrete problem. Uh, we could sell it for a relatively cheap price, you know, cheap in the world of enterprise software. Uh, we could make it really easy to try it out. We could make it really easy to pull it out. So reduce a lot of the risk about buying enterprise software. And those were kind of the values that we started the company with. Uh, we started out first with, a, with an application that, that built drag and drop calendaring for uh, Salesforce marketing campaigns. So Salesforce has this campaigns functionality uh, that doesn't have a good visualization. It, it's just kind of rows and rows of data in a database and we built this calendar visualization for when your campaigns are running and being able to pull like the right data based on the time period you were looking at and uh we were able to you know small discrete footprint it's built on the salesforce platform and deployed there we were able to get from initial concept like drawings on a whiteboard to first revenue within about four months five months which is really hard to do in enterprise software yeah and it, and it really was a statement to, um, to the ease of developing on the Salesforce platform, as well as kind of all the mechanisms or infrastructure they had built for distributing that software. So, you know, being able really not as easy as installing an app on a phone is what we learned, but much easier than most enterprise software deployments where an admin didn't have to call a consultant. You know, you didn't have to have Accenture come and like scope the project and work on it. They could just really push a button, install the software, try it out for a while. If they liked it, buy it. And if they didn't like it, pull it out by its roots and it was gone. One of the founding principles kind of shaped by my experience at Fuser was we had also said, we are going to try and bootstrap this or at least bootstrap it to the point where we have already developed so much internal value that by the time we go out to get an investor, we can kind of dictate the terms. So, you know, we're not, we're not showing up with a napkin, giving away a third of the company for somebody to give us that initial capital. Instead, we're really gonna starve ourselves essentially while we get this first revenue out. But you know that that kind of sets your goal of I got to get revenue as fast as possible because I'm, you know, burning money, my own money, uh, to try and get there. And luckily, you know, we had spouses who were really supportive. Uh, we always joke that our spouses were the were the investors, not only you know, in terms of keeping us afloat and feeding us and whatever, but also the moral support that, that any entrepreneur kind of needs. The, the, the other people who say, yeah, I see your dream and go for it, right? Like our, our spouses were really good for that. And so, you know, we got to that first revenue and uh, none of the money came in, like went back to us, right? We were paying our developers. We were all the costs of running a business. So we went maybe Oh, geez, almost three years without paying ourselves. So another, give you another sense of just how supportive uh, our spouses end up being there. And then uh, about two years in, we built a second product. And that second product uh, was based on what I had done with Agile, the kind of the work um, that I had done in, as a consultant in bringing Agile into teams. Like one of the things we saw was, hey, traditional project management you know, think here of Microsoft project with its massive Gantt charts and work breakdown structures and all that stuff. Like traditional project management is not great for people who want to adopt an agile, uh, call it philosophy 
into running things like a marketing team or into running things like general business teams. And there really wasn't anything out there yet. The closest people were using was Basecamp. Yeah, uh, I yeah. used that for a couple of years. Yeah, and, and, and Basecamp, the philosophy behind it, we were very much about, but even Basecamp was still kind of, I don't know, showing its DNA uh, where did it come from running an agency, right? And so if you think about client projects and what they look like, uh, sometimes you can run a Agile, but sometimes you can't. And the Basecamp folks had always kind of thought through their world looking at an agency lens. And so Basecamp really kind of had that bias towards client projects. And so we started building and essentially what we ended up with was uh, a virtual whiteboard, you know, running a, running a uh, Kanban uh, whiteboard inside of Salesforce and, and all the data being Salesforce data meant that you could do some really interesting things in terms of tying your Salesforce data to projects or tasks inside of what we had built. So that product was called Taskray. And uh, at the time, you know, two years in, we were still very, very small. We were working out of my co-founder's basement. I had never worked as, I'd, I'd always been a product person or an engineer. I'd never really worked uh, doing sales, but there was nobody else to sell. And so I had been slowly teaching myself sales and uh, teaching myself maybe isn't even the right word. I'd been slowly just doing it and, and, and acquiring skills organically, not really going out to get training, not spending a lot of time talking to sales professionals. So really kind of selling from a I don't know, from a product manager's point of view, right? So often I would get on the phone on a sales call and spend a lot more time really digging into the customer's paint, right? A good product manager really is interested in what their customers are up to in terms of pain. Uh, and, and let, you know, I always joke with my product managers, you don't want any customer to tell you what the solution is. You just want them to get back to telling you about the pain, right? Cause often they don't know the right solution and they might give you a prescription for something they think is right and it distracts you from, get back to what's the pain, right? Get, can we generalize the pain, et cetera. Now, um, from a sales point of view, that ends up being a particular way to sell even, if you can really get into that customer's pain. And so I'd spent a lot of time doing that kind of work as we brought Taskray, this agile project management uh, product that was much more, I don't know, larger footprint than the first product we had built. As we brought that out into the world and I was spending more and more time with customers, what I, ended up discovering was there's one major reason why people end up putting project management, agile project management into their Salesforce instance. Uh, it was like 80% of our customers were doing one use case with it. And that was onboarding their new customers with whatever it is that had been sold. Hmm. And that, that was like really a light bulb moment for us as, as we started to kind of you know, first go out and say, well, we're selling product management or I'm sorry, project management. And what we learned was like, yeah, it's project management for one big use case. It's a use case that every business in the world has to solve this problem. And if you are deep enough into your Salesforce instance, if you've really adopted Salesforce as a system of record in running your business, sooner or later, you're going to run into onboarding my customers. I wish I was generating data. I wish that data was tied to the data that was related to the sale. I wish that I could generate an executive dashboard. I wish that my CEO never got surprised when a customer called and said, you guys are late delivering, right? Those sorts of things start showing up 
as you get as you lean on your Salesforce instance more and more, and we just happen to be right spot at the right time to solve that problem really well. And and it was a really interesting thing to discover because I think the first time it really crystallized for me was uh, we were working with Papa Murphy's, the take and bake pizza franchise. And uh, you know when I first started talking to them, I thought, well, they're looking for something to manage making pizzas. And that's going to be interesting. I don't know that we're going to handle that very well. And within the, by the end of the first call, what I realized was that's not what they were looking for at all. They had been purchased by a private equity group. And the private equity group had said, hey, we see a land grab opportunity here. We need to see new store franchise sales. We want to see you guys 10 exit over the next couple of years. And they went, uh-oh, because their process for turning on a new franchise store, uh, it, it had worked so far, but it was essentially clipboards and people rather than any sort of system. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Wow. And, 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 you know, they, they had done fine with it, but it, they didn't think it was necessarily going to scale easily 10x. And they had just finished a pretty massive implementation of Salesforce. It had a lot of customization, a lot of like really matching their workflow to what was in their system. So we really made sense there. And it was ultimately, when you look at the projects that were running through Taskray for those guys, it was at least half real estate. You know, are we, are we negotiating the leases correctly? Are we getting zoning correctly? Are, are we doing all those things to support our franchise sale so that we can bring up the franchisee according to the contract and also put them on the best foot forward for getting them successful? And that's, like I said, the light bulb moment for me was like, oh, every business in the world has to figure this out, how to onboard their customers. And as it gets more complex and as their volume goes up, uh, wow, people are really going to need this. And that, you know, we would see, we would see e-commerce or, or uh, SaaS software businesses who are just turning on new SaaS customers. We, uh, we saw healthcare companies who are selling medical devices, like cancer therapy devices that take 18 months to build from the time the order goes in to the time it's up and running and treating patients. It's like 18 months and it's a very complicated procedure. They were running that through Taskray. So it was really, you know, from a product geek's point of view, it was really awesome because I got to deliver about so many different businesses out in the world. And I was selling and I was, you know, we, of course, you can imagine building on the Salesforce platform and only selling to Salesforce customers. We were very tightly partnered with Salesforce. And so managing that relationship and Salesforce, this multi-billion dollar and over the course of our life, you know, growing bigger and bigger and bigger and getting more and more power and like expanding into more and more markets. Uh, they're a very, very good partner and they can also be sometimes a challenging partner. And so managing all those pieces and all of that uh, was kind of snowballing, you know, and we were doing really well. Like sometimes we'd have years of like 100% revenue growth and sometimes, you know, on a bad year, we'd have like 40% revenue growth. Like we were really doing well and at the same time, still bootstrapped. So entirely running on the profit that we were able to generate entirely like finally we were paying ourselves but always having that very scrappy very lean mentality in terms of how we ran the business uh and and very different you know from our peers that we would talk to in say the bay area or our peers even as we talked in the denver boulder corridor 
to other companies that were doing enterprise software or just, you know, four years into their life, five years into their life. Uh, it was really obvious to us that we were kind of having to make up our own playbook because it was pretty rare that you were finding enterprise software companies that had bootstrapped into where they were building that first product usually took a lot of capital. And so we were kind of out on our own in many ways and, um, and uh, having to make it up. Right. Uh, so let me pause there and see, are we talking about the interesting stuff here? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I wanted okay. to, I wanted to go back to a couple things. Yeah. Uh, so I've often thought, what you and your co-founder have experienced that I've been in companies where we necessarily maybe didn't enjoy the company or the work, but I always said, man, if we took these 10 people and just figured out an idea just because we get along and we're aligned so well on, on values that we could rule the world, so to speak. Yeah. And it's, it's cool to hear that you've done that. And the one question I had going back to, you talked about the specific use case and being uh, interested in their pain. When you realized that your platform wasn't exactly what you had designed it and the customers were kind of telling you this is what we do and how we use it, how long was it before you sort of looked at it from that perspective and accepted it? Because I've heard stories about like Pinterest and all these other mm-hmm. um, applications that have started off as one thing and they're not being used the way that they were intended, but they're still being used. And I think it takes a, a high degree of objectivity and, and disconnecting yourself personally and professionally from what you're doing and just going like, oh, this is not how we see ourselves, but it's okay. Like, what was that process like? Yeah. Well, you know, um, I always... Uh, lean on the the saying about bootstrap business is nothing is fast enough. Nothing is cheap enough. And that's <laughs> that we weren't fast enough in terms of really understanding what it was that I was uncovering as I was out selling. Uh, you know, like I said, I had that light bulb moment and, and I kind of under started to understand it, but you know, when we were at 75, 80% of our customers who were doing that, you still had 25% who were doing other stuff with project management. And that felt very scary to give up if we were going to double down on the story of this is for, for onboarding your customers. This isn't project management anymore. It's a customer onboarding tool. Um, so, you know, we knew, we knew pretty clearly, I knew pretty clearly sometime in 2015 when the product had been out for a couple of years, I knew in 2015 that this is what most people were doing with it, but it wasn't until Hmm. I don't know, sometime in 2018. So another three years before we were willing to like focus our, our marketing message on just talking about customer onboarding. You know, we always wanted to kind of play it both ways and say, well, yeah, everybody's using us for customer onboarding. That's totally our use case. We know how to do it. But if you want to use us for something else, you can still do that too. Right. And that was just, I think, a function of being bootstrapped and a function of having lived lean for so long and just tried to find any revenue anywhere you could get it, that it actually was pretty scary to say, well, we might be giving up 25% of the available market when we turn and focus on this one thing. And that 25% feels pretty scary to walk away from. Yeah. Um, 
but but I'd also say from a product point of view, you know, as a as a, a guy who studies product management a lot, it's a pretty typical story, right? Like like discovering that the thing that you built uh, has a use that you didn't know about, and your customers showing you the way that that you're delivering the most value, like that's not that uncommon. And so even knowing that that was out there allowed us to get a little more of a push. Um, and then, and then ultimately what started uh, the, the ball really moving and the commitment, right? The commitment to uh, devoting the marketing messaging, but even the commitment to changing, you know, the, like there's a DBA, the company is no longer working as Bracket Labs, it's working as Taskray. It's one of those things that like, oh, if we had known this when we started the company, we probably would have just called the company Taskray. We didn't know for a number of years. Uh, the thing that really pushed us was the emergence of the idea of, of customer success as a category of of tools out there. Mm. And um, and there's a company called Gainsight that helps uh, that helps their customers measure, I don't know, the health of a customer. And Gainsight really helped create this category of customer success. And what we started seeing of like, well, you know, if you want a successful customer the first impression, the first foot forward is the onboarding experience. And if you can really get that, you know, very, very well run, if you can get it so that it's adaptable and flexible as your customers change, the process changes with it. If you can do all these things in the investment on that first step forward, you really set the tone for the relationship and, and the customer going forward. So, you know, we time that really well with the emergence of this customer success category. And then, now we're starting to see like onboarding, everybody's waking up to onboarding and we just happen to be the people that have been doing it for a number of years. And uh, you know, I would argue the leaders in the Salesforce specific space for it. So um, yeah, you know, th there was that, but, but your point about uh, you know, two founders and then the first early employees all sharing values and really what can we build when we all share values, that's exactly, that's exactly how I was thinking about it. You know, my experience with the end of Fuser and kind of all the challenges with raising money, what, what felt like ultimately a pretty inefficient process to go out there and, and, you know, I think we spent, you know, it was right after Labor Day to the beginning of November was how long that roadshow went. Um, and that was like, we weren't doing anything else. We weren't working on delivering value inside the company very much. We were working on pitching. We were working on honing our story. We were working on convincing somebody to write us a check. And I really hated spending that time that way. It just seemed like there could be a much more efficient way to do it. So, you know, coming back to like, well, do we share the same values? Do we want the same things? Can we do it on our own? Can we do it without... Um, you know, call it the externalities of, of venture investment. And I think that I'm not alone in starting to think about some of these topics, right? Like, like prior to the pandemic uh, for, the for the last couple of years, you've seen some observers or even people in the industry start to say, hey, we're starting to see some funny things happen with the way that VCs are thinking about making investments, particularly in SaaS businesses where they're asking them to go deep, deep, deep in the red in terms of customer acquisition with the bet that somehow they're going to slingshot out of that red into, you know, outlandish profits at some point. And, and you're, you're actually putting incentives in front of entrepreneurs to run businesses that 
from a fundamental business point of view don't make sense, hoping that someday they're going to come into making sense. And of course, you know, there's plenty of success stories that have done that model. I think Amazon is maybe one of the, the ones that really stands out of like, you know, we're going to go into the red for decades in order to take over the entire market. But the likelihood of that happening for every single venture investment is pretty low. And there's a lot of like solid businesses out there, solid products that are delivering value that because they're getting pushed into this slingshot model of spending a lot of money as fast as possible, going deep into the red to find out if they're going to be successful or not, and then leaving them for dead if they can't, you know, make that uh, inflection point turn and come rocketing back out. Uh, I think it kills a lot of businesses needlessly, right? And it's, and it's because these businesses are going to be shaped in one particular way that fits the venture capital business model, the portfolio model for how they're managing their money. And so we really had some strong conviction around like, you know, like I said, like we're only going to raise money when we can do it on our terms, when we are able to show up at the table with enough value generated that we can actually say, you guys aren't buying an idea that we're testing. You guys are buying into something that's generating profit, something that is a predictable business, right? Um, and the other thing I'll, I'll say is I think about like founders coming together around values rather than a particular burning passion for an idea. Uh, you always, I think it's a very well-worn saying to new entrepreneurs, like don't, don't do this unless you love it. Don't do it unless you have a passion for it. And I always thought that that was about maximizing their chances for success. Like if you're passionate about the problem you're solving, then you're much more likely to be successful with it. And I think that to some extent that's true, but I think the flip side of that, why that is such a truism that gets repeated so often, the flip side of it is, gosh, if you're, successful enough to like make it out of your first say two years uh you should be ready for a 10-year or more process right you should be ready for a 10-year life and 10 years of your working life not just uh your job but but it's going to consume you know if you're a founder it's going to consume so much of your mental bandwidth it's going to consume so much of your emotional bandwidth and if you're going to spend 10 years doing it man, you better love it, right? Not because <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, not it's going to make you more successful, but because if you don't love it, it's going to grind you up. And the values that you share with your co-founders, uh, the values that you're inculcating into your team, the culture that you're building, those all might be able to support you to some extent. But at the end of the day, if you don't have a burning passion for what you're up to, gosh, how are you going to get fed, right? How are you going to nourish your soul? And I ran into that, uh, I ran into that pretty hard uh, culminating in, in the end of 2018, me leaving the company. So the company is, you know, still a going concern. I'm, I still serve on the board. Uh, I still talk regularly with my co-founder, but yeah, ultimately like uh, the stress and then, and then uh, a bunch of physical health stuff started showing up that I'm convinced were exacerbated by the stress like really took its toll on me eventually. And, um, and, and you, then you get into even harder conversations about like, as much as I share these values, as much as this is my family, as much as I love these people, 
Like, am I doing the best thing for this organization right now? Am I doing the best thing for me right now? How do I take care of myself so that I even have anything left, you know, for, uh, for my family, for, for the people that need me, et cetera. So that some pretty hard stuff there that started happening for me, uh, in 2018, I guess late 2017 into 2018. Yeah. That, uh, it seems like almost the opposite end of the spectrum from Fuser. Cause I, I was reading the, the Netflix, uh, book from their founder and he talks about some of those layoffs in the beginning and how, um, I think on the one to many side that must've been very rough for you. But then when you exited task ray bracket labs, that's the many to one coming your direction. Mm-hmm. And not that one's easier, but it's tough in a very different way. And it, and that was what we had talked about on our happy hour. I wanted to dive into that as much as you feel comfortable about understanding first and foremost, your, your health concerns and just that this isn't, I don't want to make stuff up. It's like, man, I'm tired all the time or whatever the cases were. And then leading to walking away from something like that, where you, you do share those values and you live it and it's a passion and um, take me through that because I think that's something that you know, everybody goes to work, but how do you reconcile and, and make such a powerful decision that impacts yourself and your, your wife and your kids and their future and then the company's future? Yeah, it's not easy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so, so to, to, you know, I, I mentioned I had never sold before, had basically was a self-taught salesperson uh, eventually had other salespeople reporting to me. So went out and like hired and then like trained salespeople to do what I had been doing. And, uh, you know, sometime in 2016, I started developing about once a month, I'd have this like physical sensation of choking and I, I, I could breathe just fine, but it felt as if I was choking and it would last for maybe 10, 20 minutes. And at its worst, it was pretty debilitating. Like I would need to like lay down and curl up in a ball for a while as I just kind of tried to relax my throat and relax. And I had no idea what was going on. Uh, the frequency of that started picking up, you know, so that by the end of 2016, it was happening a couple times a week. Uh, for those listeners, uh, who are saying, well, why didn't you go to a doctor? Like, I just, I don't know. I was, I was in some ways I was pretty scared of what it could be. Of course. And, yeah. and then did the irrational thing of like going, well, I don't know that I want a doctor to confirm. My WebMD diagnosis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I had, um, I had uh, been, been close to somebody whose father had died of pancreatic cancer and, you know, pancreatic cancer is such a fatal diagnosis, oftentimes because it takes so long to actually figure out what it is. It's a hard, it's a hard one to detect. And he had had really similar symptoms in his early days. And I thought, well, if that's a death sentence, I don't necessarily need to know. Maybe I can just like gut it through. And, uh, and it was, you know, in retrospect, really stupid. But that's kind of my, when you have issues going on with your stomach, right? Like I, I couldn't eat solid food without really kicking it off. So I was like kind of 
eating a lot of nutrition shakes. But when you have issues with your stomach and your gut and your digestion, what you often don't appreciate is how much of your emotional health is actually governed by what's happening in your, in your GI. And I had never thought about it. I'd never thought about like, you know, all these uh, hormones like serotonin. Serotonin is generated out of the GI. It's, it's, not, it's not necessarily a brain chemical, right? Your brain uses it, but it's coming from your stomach and, um, and your gut. And so, you know, the only thing I would say in my defense for, for kind of treating it that way was I was really on tilt emotionally. And mm -hmm. uh, in 2016, we had doubled our revenue. And at the end of 2016, I kind of looked up and went, uh-oh, I don't feel any sort of success. <laughs> I don't feel any sort of pride. I just really burned myself up this year doing this while my stomach was getting worse and worse and worse. And I feel empty inside. And it was really, that was, it was a wake up call for me because we got surprised at how good of a year we had in 2016. We didn't even forecast for it that way. Uh, and I felt nothing but despair in it. And I went, oh, well, okay, got to go figure this out. And so I went down this crazy medical rabbit hole of, you know, it took like, uh, it took three months to get a diagnosis of what was going on. And, and all along the way where everybody was like scratching their head and going, well, this is funny. Let's try this test. Let's try that test. All along the way, there was nothing that was ruling out uh, cancer, right? And I kept going like, do I have cancer? And no, we don't know, right? If you hear, if you hear hoofbeats, don't assume it's a zebra. It's probably a horse. And, <laughs> and we kept getting there. And then finally, um, uh, I ended up with like a full stomach series x-ray and they discovered, uh, so there's a, there's a type of hernia called a hiatal hernia. And it's when the, it's when the stomach squeezes through the, uh, the opening in your diaphragm where your esophagus passes through, but your stomach will actually squeeze up. And typically when it squeezes up, when you see this happen, it, it happens to elderly and obese patients, most likely. And you get like maybe 5% of the stomach squeezed up there and it causes really bad reflux and it's, you know, they know what to do with it. They, they typically just treat the reflux. But by the time they diagnosed me, I had that same hernia, but I had a version of it that's really rare called a paraesophageal version of it, which is actually dangerous because at this point, 50% of my stomach had squeezed up into my chest through my diaphragm and was, and, and was at risk of twisting. And that's the danger. If it twists, you lose blood flow to that portion of your stomach that's up in your chest. And 48, 48 hours later, you have like rotting tissue in your chest, right? And you're losing your stomach. And so when they finally diagnosed it, they went, oh, uh, we don't want to say the word emergency, but if these things happen, it will be an emergency. You have to go to an emergency room immediately. They're going to cut you open from sternum to navel and they're going to fix it. We would really like to avoid that. So why don't you schedule surgery as fast as possible? And so early 2017, I had this like stomach surgery to repair it. Uh, and, and, you know, listeners can't see me, but I'm, I'm, I'm not elderly and I'm not obese. Right. So it was also just funny that I had developed it, let alone the fact that I developed this very rare version of it, the parasophageal version of it. And recovering from that uh, into 2017, it was very obvious to me that I was off, that I was still uh, I was still emotionally pretty ragged. I was still cognitively pretty ragged. 
and uh, and it was a very slow recovery from that surgery up into 2018, where it was like very obvious that that my effectiveness at work was starting to go down. And of course, I had been there from the beginning. I, I in many ways, uh, you know, with my co-founder, we had architected a lot of the values that we were living, and so I still had some contribution I could make. I could still be the voice of experience and the voice of like, where do our values live? But like, I was getting to the point where one sales call in a day was wearing me out. And uh, at some point I would just declare bankruptcy on my inbox for the day and just stop replying to email and stop looking at email. And it was just really like, I was starting to wobble really bad and maybe even my wheels were coming off. And so by the end of 2018, that had become pretty obvious. And, and I think there was this question about like, what, hey, one of our leaders, what's he doing, right? How is he contributing? How are we, how are we, how are we able to go faster if this dude is doing this? And, um, and that was a really hard conversation between my co-founder and I. And it, was, and it was made even harder by, you know, my own raggedness, my own like being really out of touch with how I was feeling and, and that, that fog that was coming up again, I think actually exacerbated by the physical problems in my digestion of like, Hey, my brain is not processing this well. How do I show up and not feel like, uh, you know, I always think about it as imagine you're a caveman, uh, and you hear a saber tooth tiger outside the cave, like everything that goes through your body, as you first perceive a threat and then get ready to deal with whatever that threat's going to present you, right? You, like you have a couple choices. You get to fight it or you get to run away as fast as possible. And then if it ends up catching you, you have your last ditch attempt of like pretending you're dead, right? Those are your choices when you really get into that threat state. And I think that I was living in that threat state and it was really kind of exacerbated by my stomach, but it was also exacerbated by you know, all the problems that we have as humans of like really expressing ourselves to another person and really like showing up courageously with another person. And so my co-founder and I, even though we we're having these hard conversations, like we couldn't actually see each other. We couldn't actually hear each other. We couldn't actually express what we were thinking and feeling very well. And that was all coming back to like, gosh, Eric, you're, you're really kind of broken right now. And so, you know, by the end of 2018, when, when I decided uh, to leave and, and, you know, one of the big questions was, well, I don't know what I do next. My whole life, <laughs> uh, yeah. my whole adult life has been defined by my ability to work and my ability to, to kind of suffer, right? To gut it out and to white knuckle my way through it. And I was really good at it, right? Like anybody who is... Uh, studied engineering as an undergrad knows exactly what I'm describing. It's like you white knuckle your way through engineering school because it is designed to weed out people who are not willing to do it. Right. It's really hard, grueling work. Uh, and, and I had always kind of excelled at it and I'd always defined myself as my ability to do it. And that's, that's the value I had in the world. And all of a sudden at the end of 2018, like I didn't have that going on anymore. In fact, I had to really reconcile with, I can't do it right now. And if I can't do what I know to be true about myself, I can't do the things that make me valuable in the world. What am I? Who am I? How does this work? Gosh, I don't know, right? Um, and I'll also mention, 
this was coinciding, you know, with me being in my mid forties. And later on, I would, I would find that there's actually a really good body of data that supports, uh, they call it the U curve of satisfaction, right? Like what we grew up thinking of as midlife crises. Uh, there's actually a really good body of data that says most humans will experience it. Most humans will drop into that U curve. And uh, I heard it described as you enter the U curve going, is this it? <laughs> and, then, and then you spend 10 years in this crisis of meaning and this crisis of significance in your life. And roughly 10 years later, you pop out and you go, this is it. And, and every, like, like behavioral economists can see it in the data from across all these different countries. They control for wealth and they control for health and they control for, you know, things like wars and they see it. And then like, they even think they see it in some of the higher primates like chimpanzees and gorillas. It just seems to be a function of higher brains where somewhere in midlife, you drop into this 10 year trough of dissatisfaction. And so I think that this was also happening for me at the same time, right? So all of a sudden it's like, uh, everything you think you do in the world that adds value, you can't do it anymore. And it's very obvious to you that you're broken doing it. Uh, and also you're starting to reckon with like, what does this all mean? And what, right, how, how is any of this meaningful? And how will I find that meaning, right? The things that we know, uh, you know, from Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? At the top of Maslow's pyramid is like self-actualization. How, how, how am I going to get self-actualized, right? Because now that I'm, close enough to really see death in front of me, how am I really going to decide what to do with the rest of my life? How am I going to get that meaning? So all this was happening. You know, I had the physical stuff. I had the emotional stuff. I had, I had the midlife stuff all kind of like crashing together. And uh, luckily, also had spent enough time to get Task Ray to a place where it was successful. Like me leaving uh, did not in any way kill the business, right? And there were certainly some adjustments that needed to be had. Um, you know, I described all this, like me not being able to work very well, but it turns out I was doing a lot of stuff that just none of us, including me, were even remembering that I was up to, you know, like I was the guy that handled all of our contracts. And for those people that have bought and sold enterprise software, you know how bad the contracts can get. <laughs> I, I was the contract guy. And, and this, when I left, nobody had ever had experience like working with our attorneys on contracts or even like thinking through the business terms of our contracts. It was all me. Um, so there was a lot of that kind of stuff that I didn't even remember I was doing. I was just taking care of it. Um, those adjustments had to be made as I left. But, you know, like I always like to tell my co-founder, it's once you get it going, a SaaS business uh, it's pretty hard to just precipitously fall off a cliff, right? The nature of a subscription software business is such that, yeah, you could probably have declines. Yeah, you could probably kill the business, but it isn't going to accidentally happen where you just fall in a hole, right? And and even in this, you know, the, the crisis of the pandemic that we're living in right now, you can see uh, businesses built on a SaaS model, as long as their customers haven't completely gone away, uh, have a lot of advantages. They don't need people to be physically in one location, right? They don't, they don't need uh, a lot of the things that are not available during the pandemic. So, you know, the business kept going pretty well. And uh, the relationship between my co-founder and I was really strained for a long, long time, but that didn't stop the business from having a great 2019. 
And in the meantime, I was left with uh, the very hard challenge of like, well, how are you going to put yourself back together? Right? How are you, how are you going to go and address some of these things that right now uh, are stopping you? All right. And, uh, and I don't know, like you tell me if it's interesting to talk about where we went with that, but, but yeah, like that, that, that leaving point was a, you know, a high water mark of crisis uh, for me personally. Thank you for sharing that. And it's interesting, the timing of having this discussion with you, because I went through something, you know, mildly similar to that a couple months ago. So we're recording this on, what is it? Tuesday, May 26th here, just for people to have context about the whole pandemic. But I remember it was end of March, kind of few weeks into April, I was having what was feeling like persistent chest pains. And similar to you, I had a couple of friends that had, uh, passed away sadly from heart attacks and a friend that had something like this and ended up having quadruple bypass and for probably about three weeks was dealing with this and saw cardiologist via zoom. And he's like, all right, here's what is why you need to call the ER and here's Mm -hmm. what'll wait till mid June so we can put you on a treadmill and I can get you to 80 years old. And Coupling with that, I recognize now with the help of therapists the past couple of weeks that I was in the midst of a situational depression as well, because mm-hmm. my daughter's here and she's 17 and you know has a car and you know doesn't, you know, with a capital N need me, but still needs me. And I remember kind of that, you know, I think right at the end of March, first week of April. There's a couple of days where the coffee maker goes off and it's nine o'clock and still haven't gotten out of bed and I've counted the ceiling fan blades mm-hmm. 47 times and you know work had kind of dried up and I just had come to this, you know, it wasn't like a I didn't crash land into this crater going, doesn't matter if I get out of bed, but it <laughs> kind of didn't, you know? Yeah. Uh-huh. And I was facing a lot of fears about career and and college and money and all these things. And I know that at my best, I'm in a rhythm and a habit of doing things. And action is the only, I've learned this through a lot of reading and a lot of counseling and therapy is that just do something and it it starts unwinding that snowball. But there were days when I just, like you said, that you taught, you declared bankruptcy on your, your email box. There were things that were the simplest things to do that I just, I, you know, I've got a little core exercise routine written on a tiny little whiteboard in my, in my room. And I would look at the plank as the start to kick that off. And I mm-hmm. just would be sitting on the floor and it's like, just roll over and do it and just do it. And it just took me sort of weeks and weeks and weeks of just feeling off and feeling terrible and just sort of like, yeah, we got to talk about this. We got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And that identity, right? I think you hit upon something very, very powerful that, man, like I'm not 
quite a parent and I'm not quite an employee and I'm not, you know, and I had this podcast and I had my clothing company, like who cares, <laughs> right? Like if nobody, if I never push out another episode, like who's going to care. But again, it was recognizing that and, you know, you and I had booked this a month ago and kind of in that mini recovery, it's like, I'm going to just do something. Maybe I don't feel like doing it, but let's book an interview with Eric and then let's push one out that I recorded a couple of weeks ago. And like, mm-hmm. God, just do something, you know, but it's so hard to, again, admit it to myself is the hardest thing and, sure. and agree. Sure. I like, Ultimately, what, what I came to realize for myself, at least, is that there are so many factors. There's so many ways that, uh, I don't know, your emotional health yeah. is under, under attack, right? And you can almost think of it as like an immune system response of like, if we're really healthy emotionally, those attacks, we're able to kind of brush them off pretty easily. We're able to come back to like, the nourishment that's available in our lives. But if we are, if our immune system, our emotional immune system is, is shut down for some reason or compromised for some reason, then some of those attacks start to land. Right. And, and mm-hmm. those attacks that they can be, they can be little ones, right. Or, or ones that every, every parent experiences, right. The end of the growing independence of their child and the, the necessary redefinition of themselves as their child gains more independence. Like, all parents are going to have to navigate that one, right? That can land as an attack that hurts us or can land as something else, but it really depends on our immune system. But, but even things like um, living in this pandemic, right? Like one of the things I think about a lot in this pandemic is like, there's this non-specific grief. It's like static electricity mm-hmm. in the air. And you may not know anybody, who's been directly affected by this, but that doesn't change the fact that at some human level, you're feeling the weight of nearly 100,000 of your citizens dead and however many it is in the world dead. And not just that, but the uncertainty of what happens next, the inability to make a plan, all those things start to weigh on you, right? And that I would argue is like a huge weight that is even tougher because it isn't an acute weight, right? It's not poking you where you can go like, oh, that's sharp. You go, no, it's, you know, it's slowly boiling the frog. The temperature is very slowly just rising on me until I'm in boiling water. But I didn't notice two minutes ago. And it's because of this, you know, it's a beautiful day outside in Colorado right now. And yet, you know, we've got all these tensions around us and a lot of them are nonspecific. So a good immune system would allow me to be able to go, yeah, that's true. All those things are happening, all this uncertainty, all this risk, all these things are out there. And I have the ability to kind of put it down. It doesn't lose anything. It doesn't lose any of its detail. It doesn't, you know, I know exactly where I put it, but I can put it down and I can access the joy that's in the world, right? And that's the nourishment. That's the immune system booster. And um, it's funny, like, you mentioned therapy. Like I have been, I wish there were frequent flyer miles for therapy. Like I have (laughs) you and me both brother. (laughs) Yeah. I've spent a lot of, you know, not just time in session, but also time reading and, and trying to find out, you know, I've, I've even started to conceptualize it as an entire country therapy world. 
and there's just so many different factions and there's so many different like counties inside of therapy world, but everybody doing it well with good intent, everybody's up to the same thing, which ends up actually being kind of hard to put into words. It's a little bit, uh, it, it can kind of sometimes delve into the spiritual things like words like healing uh, or nurturing the soul, nurturing the spirit. I think everybody is up to that inside the therapy world. And, and, you know, when I describe all these different factions and counties, like whatever, whatever any given person thinks about when they think about therapy, like I'll guarantee you there's a hundred times more of, of other things in therapy world. Right. So whatever it is that your experience of is therapy or whatever connotations you have of therapy, um, there's so many more that are out there. And for me personally, you know, coming as an engineer, uh, coming as somebody who really defined myself about like rational thought and science. Gosh, a couple of years ago, like when I was really starting to wobble, if you told me the answer was going to be somehow spiritual, I would have dismissed you immediately. And having done the work that I did in 2019, and, and it, it got very, very intense. It, I mean, it culminated in 2019 with the hernia coming back. <laughs> hmm. And despite having a surgical repair that should have made it impossible, uh, like I was in the ER in October of 2019, thinking I was having a heart attack because it couldn't possibly be this hernia again. And it was. The hernia had come back, and it, had, it was just as bad despite the surgical repairs. I had uh, roughly 60, 70% of my stomach up in my chest again. And needing now not just that same surgery, but uh, if you have multiple abdominal surgeries, every time you have surgery, you leave scar tissue behind. And so each additional abdominal surgery becomes more and more complex for the surgeon. And so this one, when I ended up, at, you know, going into December, it was like, uh, hey, this one, you, like, we're really thinking there's a coin toss that we're going to have to open you up. And if we open you up, we're going to have to go through the muscle in your abdomen. And that recovery is going to be horrible, horrible, right? And, and many people don't recover full function and make your peace with this, right? And so like 2019 was this grueling year of self-work and, and I popped out of it. I popped out of, well, I, I you know, the, the happy hour that we had, uh, you know, was put together by our friend Eric Hill. Like Eric and I met two days before my, my surgery for the first time. And uh, we had made plans. Like, yeah, when, when I'm up on my feet, we'll go get a drink together. And I wasn't up on my feet for two months. Mm. And laying on your back for 18 hours a day going, I feel horrible and I can't really eat and I'm having trouble breathing and I'm having these spasms. Like all of that, plus all the therapy work I had done, led me to this like, oh, I guess it is spiritual. I guess it is this quality that like is not discernible and this quality that's even going to take a little bit of faith where I got to believe without any data, without any science that's going to back it up. And, and, and when I could really let myself into that, when I could open to it, then you find the joy, right? And that's the nourishment. That's how you're going to rebuild your immune system. Ultimately, like me being able to go, wow, look at this plant sprouting. And there's this little hint of joy in going out in my yard and just like, you know, even looking at a weed coming out of the ground for the first time can just give you that little you know, little jolt and, and knowing that it's there also allows you to put down the anguish, right? The anguish is still there. The pandemic is still around us. Uh, it's, it's harder than ever to be running a business right now, even if you're a SaaS business that has some of the advantages that I described earlier, but 
I can put that down and I can go outside and I can go, holy, like, look at these bees going crazy on these flowers. And this, <laughs> this feeds me a little bit, right? It gets me back a little bit. And then uh, ultimately what we're describing here, uh, you know, in the world of therapy is some sort of trauma, right? And, and in, uh, again, like a couple of years ago, if you would have told me like, you're a trauma survivor, I would have dismissed it. No, I'm not. Right. But the more I learned about trauma, the more I learned that like trauma is not just the one thing that I define it as. Trauma is not just a kidnapping or a bomb going off or getting abused by a caretaker. Like whatever you might think of trauma is like trauma can be so much broader, really. And trauma could be anything. Yeah, not acute. It could be yep. cumulative and, and um, <laughs> I just brain fuzzed on the, the opposite of acute. But you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And, and I mean, uh, think about the news story we've all seen about the content moderators at Facebook being diagnosed with PTSD. Like trauma doesn't even have to be happening to you for you to suffer trauma from it, right? Uh, therapists who specialize in, in working with trauma often find themselves with PTSD from just hearing the stories of other people's trauma. So trauma can be this really sneaky, subtle thing that, that builds up over time. And, and trauma can be, you know, when we think about childhood trauma, trauma can be uh, the absence of something that should have been happening. So emotional neglect and not because there was any sort of uh, willful abuse happening from a, from a caretaker or from a parent, simply because that parent probably was suffering from their own trauma and wasn't available emotionally in a way that their child needed. And over time, the child learns like, oh, I'm actually suffering. I'm hurting because I'm not getting the love and nurturing that I need from a caretaker. And over time you come up with all these strategies to define yourself as not needing it or not deserving it or whatever, how you deal with the disappointment of a parent not loving you in the way that you need to be loved, that ends up being trauma. And that ends up being a very difficult to unwind trauma because you know it was happening so early and you built up so many successful strategies, right? Until it, they all worked really well until they didn't work. And so I, I spent a lot of time in 2019 first trying to understand it, then getting to a point where I could recognize that it was me inside of it, right? So I, I always laugh about trauma. I, like I, uh, there's, a, there's work from a guy named Peter Levine out there who is def really was one of the groundbreakers in saying, hey, trauma ends up being stored in the body and the nervous system. And the reason why we have such difficulty treating trauma uh, through traditional therapy methods is because they depend on talking and insight and anal analyzing what's going on. But gosh, if you had something happen to you when you were one year old, you didn't have language, you didn't have conscious thought, and it got imprinted in your nervous system and it's stored in your tissues, good luck getting to that one in talk therapy, right? And so, so there's this whole new body of, of therapy that's saying like, hey, maybe we don't need to know the story. We don't need to know how you got this trauma. It, mm -hmm. It's ultimately not important if we can get it to release. If we can get your nervous system to understand, you know, that you're safe, that there isn't a saber-toothed tiger anymore, that, that everything's okay and get that traumatic stress out of your body, then your immune system comes back up and you're much more resilient. And, you know, in my case, some of the fringier parts of therapy world are like, I've even had opinions given to me by, by people who work in this uh, somatic trauma release that, that my stomach issue is actually uh, a function of my early childhood uh, or even birth or even inherited trauma. 
And like here, you, you know, the inherited trauma, the first time I heard it, I went, no way, get out of here. And, and then you find out, oh, that, there's actually a good body of data starting with like uh, looking at the men that survived the concentration camps and looking at their offspring and how many of their offspring had anxiety disorders. Hmm. And there's an astounding amount, right? And they, so they were documenting this stuff in the 50s. And they know that like the stress, the stress of a trauma actually changes the expression of your genes. And so you actually can inherit trauma. And then for no reason that you can discern, you're suffering an anxiety disorder, right? And it, and it turns out it, you inherited it from your parents because they had something that was unresolved for them. And so like all these different ways that you accumulate these things that again, take down your immune system response when life throws hard stuff at you. And then you end up, um, you know, I, like for me, 2019, the big breakthrough was when I could actually say, oh, I guess this is me, right? For me going, I understand trauma in the theory, but it's not me. I don't have trauma to me going, oh, I probably have plenty that I haven't recognized. And then there's stuff that I'm unlikely to recognize it, but it is probably there because I can feel it there. Like that was a big step. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm going deep on this because uh, it's probably obvious this is a bit of a passion of mine, but also uh, I see it so often in other entrepreneurs, right? The, thing, the things that, that need to come together for an entrepreneur to really face the risk of starting a business and all those risks, right? The obvious risks financially and the, the less obvious ones about like being courageous enough to take on something that has a high likelihood of failing. That, that one can be a little more subtle to understand just how stressful that can be. Um, but everybody who shows up like with everything it takes to be, go be an entrepreneur inevitably has some sort of, I don't know, traumatic history that is going to pop up under stress. And that may be how you talk to the people on your team. It may be your, your potential for leadership. It may be a million different things, your potential to make a decision in a hard time in a timely way, right? Like all these things that you need to do well as an entrepreneur can get compromised by this stress. And and inevitably, what, what I think, if, you, if you're willing to dig deep enough, what you'll find is that stress is exacerbated by some sort of trauma, whether, it's, whether you know about it or whether you don't. All the different ways that we're starting to think about how trauma can be released, uh, you know, I want to encourage everybody, like, if, if you're feeling that kind of stress, there's help out there. Mm -hmm. There's new thinking out there. There's, like, there's a whole new generation of therapists who are trauma-informed and are really starting to think through what do we do if sitting and talking, you know, for decades isn't quite getting to it. What do we do next? Right. And then, then there's all kinds of, you know, again, all kinds of factions about what they think you can do. It's a new area, but, um, you know, it, I've also been surprised at how it intersects with the spirituality piece. So I, I, I do think, uh, you know, when, when I think about faith and when I think about spirituality, I tend to go towards religion. And uh, that's not what I'm talking about for anybody listening. I'm talking more about uh, matters of the soul, matters of things that you, you can know and believe without necessarily having it proved to you. And we've all got things like that. You know, like I, I'm a firm believer that raw pineapple is, has tremendous value to me. Like, I, like eating raw pineapple really has a lot of something going on in it. 
and I don't even need the data. I don't, I don't, I've never even <laughs> gotten to look, right? I just know that raw pineapple for me and for everybody, we should all eat more of it. And, and that's what I mean about the faith and spirituality pieces. Like, what are the things that you have strong conviction in, even if somebody were to prove to you that there's no data to support it, you'd still believe it. Therapy world intersects really in a funny way with that. And that's been on my mind a lot lately too, because again, as an engineer and as an entrepreneur, somebody working in tech, somebody who has a strong affinity for science, it's really easy to dismiss those things and rule them out of your life. And I think to your detriment, right? Like, like denying that those things are out there, denying that those things might offer something to you, uh, you're walling off one of the ways that you might be able to nourish yourself and, and kind of build yourself back up. This has been just a, a wonderful surprise because I've had a couple conversations with some military veterans about PTSD and I didn't serve and I didn't, uh, I don't have that thankfully, but having my eyes opened to trauma, you know, I've experienced things, you know, from childhood on, yeah, and I wouldn't say anything as, you know, as dark as some of the hypothetical concepts we've touched upon, but definitely have had, you know, unfortunate incidences throughout my life. And this has just been fascinating to dive into this and to understand this. And that's just one of the, the joys about, these conversations. And I just want to say thank you for, you know, opening up and, and sharing your experience and your, your wisdom with this and your, your insights. It's been, it's been powerful for me, Eric. And I just want to say thank you. Absolutely. I'd love to do it. And, and, you know, like I said, it's a passion of mine. So, uh, you know, as, as maybe it'd be useful to talk about a few resources if people can identify with the conversation we're having here. Yeah, definitely. And then what I can do is include those in the show notes. And I think this would be a wonderful part two for us is you know, I wrote down, you know, courage as an entrepreneur mm -hmm. that people probably think there's long hours and sacrifice and things like that. But it's one of those, you know, nobody ever gives you the adulting playbook to understand mm -hmm. how to navigate kids and marriage and balance and that. And I think that would be to take your experience in that realm and dedicate an entire second conversation to that. I think that would be great, but yeah, let's yeah. do, what are some resources and I'll definitely include those for everybody. Yeah. So, um, uh, there was a breakthrough moment for me when I had a conversation with, well, let me mention that, uh, you, you mentioned PTSD. PTSD ends up being one of the hardest mental health concerns to treat using all of these kind of old, uh, not old, but you know, all the traditional ways of therapy uh, didn't seem to touch it very often. And often, even if, even if somebody found relief from their symptoms, uh, they would see it recur later on. Uh, there's a, there's a, they're into stage three, which is like two stages away from getting FDA approval, but there's a protocol being tested right now with tremendous results uh, using MDMA. Mm -hmm. and, and MDMA with the therapy happening at the simultaneously, but they're able in just a few sessions to see something tremendous, like 70% of people who go through this protocol see their symptoms go away and stay away for at least 12 months afterwards. And that's the kind of cure rate in mental health that like really catches people's attention. They've received breakthrough 
status, which allows them to accelerate their testing, they breakthrough status from the FDA. And of course, MDMA here we're talking about is an illegal substance in the United States, right? It was made illegal in the 80s. And so the FDA is really watching this closely, but they're into stage three, which is now wider, much wider spread testing, and they're over halfway through stage three. And that uh, stage three is looking super promising. So in a best case, we're going to see that become a legal treatment available in 2024. And uh, it just goes to kind of point to, you know, trying to talk about it, trying to generate insight can certainly be useful. Uh, you know, you mentioned finding value in, in just talking with a counselor or talking with a therapist. I have too. It's certainly there. But some of these things that go so deep into our wiring, uh, ultimately, some of the new ways of thinking about things. So, you know, I mentioned Peter Levine. Uh, he was one of the first people to start theorizing about this. There's a great book out there called The Body Keeps the Score. Um, and that's, a, that's another uh, psychologist who has written and thought a lot about the effects of trauma and actually writes a lot about PTSD and treating PTSD. Um, you don't need to wait for MDMA to become a legal and available treatment in order to start actually using some of the modalities that they are basing that therapy on. And so, for instance, somatic experiencing, anybody that's working with somatic experiencing or somatic therapy in general what they're seeing is like, okay, let's not talk about it so much as like, let's move the body and let's see how we can get the body to relax. Uh, there's work out there about polyvagal theory and that, you know, there's a new part of the, the vagal nervous system that's theorized to be there that actually regulates our sense of safety. And if that thing is haywire, we can never find social connection. And if we can never find social connection, then we can never feel safe. And so you get into this nasty loop, right? So polyvagal theory, and, you know, I mentioned earlier, like there's all these different realms of therapy world. One of the places where I found kind of interesting, uh, non-obvious relief and value was in developing a yoga practice, mm. right? And the polyvagal theorists say, yeah, guess what? Breathing deeply in synchronization with a group of other people is tremendously good for telling your nervous system that you're safe, right? And so the polyvagalists aren't even sure you need to be stretching in yoga, if you guys can just get together and breathe synchronicity, you know, in a way that like tells your nervous system you're safe and you know there's humans around you breathing in the same way, right? So you start to get into some of these things that uh, don't look at all like what I would consider to be traditional therapy. And there's this new generation. Um, and, and I think the last thing I'll mention then um, is, is often the answer, if the, if the trauma is stored in the body, the answer will be in treating the body. And uh, I'm sure we all know people that are like addicted to endurance sports and I'm convinced people who are really deep into endurance sports are actually finding relief of their trauma. They're finding some way of like regulating their nervous system and, and sending the signal that they're safe. You know, uh, it's the only way that I can explain how anybody ever completes an ultra marathon um, <laughs> is that, that there's some other value that they're getting here besides, you know, the obvious ones. So there's lots of stuff out there. Um, and there's more and more discussion around trauma in general. There's, there's lots of reasons to be hopeful uh, around, you know, MDMA and I, I think uh, psilocybin, which are magic mushrooms, right? That's about a year behind where the trials are uh, for MDMA. But psilocybin is also people picking up mushrooms again and going, oh, there's way more going on here than, than you know, what, what us children of the 80s believe to be true about illicit drugs, right? And, and, and of course, we're talking about stuff that today is illegal, right? Today is not easily accessed and today is, is not regulated in any way 
you know, all the regulation around licensing and that stuff to keep us safe when we go see a provider, that stuff is not existing right now. Right. So, um, but there's reason to be optimistic that it's coming and there's no reason, like if, if you're finding some of this resonates for you as you're listening, I would tell you there's help out there today. Right. And there's no reason that you feel like you got to wait till 2024 for MDMA therapy to come online and, and be legal. Like there's help out there today. Uh, and I would encourage you, you know, to go explore because ultimately your intuition is going to point you towards the thing that's going to work best for you. And you got to just kind of learn to be open to that. I think that's, yeah, to sum it up perfectly, you know, what you've just said is like, there are options. You're not alone and it might feel that way, but there's, there's always a card you can play. And maybe if you're out of cards in your hand, you know, get someone else to borrow some of their cards and help you out. <laughs> yeah, sure. Or, or even somebody to help you realize like you have more cards in your hand than you ever realized. Yep. Yeah. 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 Well, Eric, this has been just an absolute joy and just uh, an, an eye-opening in the, the best possible way to have this conversation with you. And I'm so glad we did it. And like I said, I, I definitely want to do um, the Courageous Entrepreneur as part two soon. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love awesome. To. Yeah. Well, Eric Wu, thank you so much. I'm going to hit stop on the record and we can chat for a sec, but uh, okay. thanks a ton, brother. Absolutely. Love to be here, Matt.